long nights, short years. There's no benefit in kind of withholding information when you're dealing with intelligent people. Success is being able to choose who I work with. Does your success become a burden for the children? Hey guys, I'm Young, a full-time dad and a full-time professional with the goal to become the best parent possible. The Girl Dad Show is my journey interviewing fellow working parents aspiring to be both good at work and parenting. I'm going to do this by gathering and sharing unfiltered perspectives from my guests. So join me as I research parenthood one interview at a time. Today's episode of The Girl Dad Show is sponsored by something I'm very passionate about. Coffee. Blue Jean Coffee brings sophisticated coffee brewing straight into your home, delivering an elevated coffee experience all without having to make a trip to a cafe. They source their specialty beans directly from farmers all around the world and roast them in small batches just for your order. Are you ready to upgrade your home brewing experience? Blue Jean Coffee is offering a special deal just for my listeners. Visit bluejeancoffee.com forward slash TGDS to get 10% off your first order of Blue Jean Coffee. Oh, yeah. That's a good coffee. Awesome. Love it. Hong, welcome to the Girl Dad Show. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, man. I am so excited to talk to you and share with all the listeners your professional journey and your parenting journey. I feel like I'm always learning from you and I can't wait to share those learnings with everyone else. Thanks for, uh, I mean, I think they're kind of one of the same professional and parenting. It's two, two jobs. I love that. Let's get right into it, if you don't mind. So why don't you tell all the listeners what you do for a living? What I do for a living, I like to say that, well, if people ask you, like in the Valley at least, everybody's like, what do you do? What do you do? And I actually say the first thing is I'm a dad. That's that's my job. I take it very seriously. That's awesome. It's probably the, the most serious job I take. And secondly, I build bikes and startups. So people go, what does that mean? So I build bikes, obviously. I have a lot of bikes. But I build startups. I build startups for people. So I am usually the person you call when you raise a little bit of money and you need to hire a team. Either you call me or your investors tell you to call me. But um, I build companies for people and I've had you know some really big companies that came out of that because I've had a ton of clients over the last 10 to 12 years. But I've also had a ton of small startups that never really kind of got to the next level. So I've seen a lot. Yeah, you're like definitely something that I connotate with Silicon Valley. I feel like you're like part of Silicon Valley's like fabric and ecosystem. I'd love for you to, if you don't mind, just kind of sharing with us how you got to this point where you are a dad first, but also into bikes and building companies. Like, how, what does your professional journey look like? Yeah, like I said, it's kind of the same. It's intertwined, and there's no way to kind of separate the two. So I was, you know, kind of a young, or not young, but I would say professional tech person. And then I started working at 500 Sharps with Christine because, you know, she had heard of me because of my recruiting work. So when Five Minute Startups started, which was around the time that Max was maybe one, no, he was a couple years old at that point. But I still remember him walking around the 500 office before it was anything. It was like, you know, an empty space on the top floor on Castro Street in Mountain View. So I started doing more like advising and kind of mentor. I was a Five Minute Startups mentor, right? So I started talking to even more founders and I kept making like these analogies to parenting. 
And it's it kind of sucked because a lot of the founders were like young guys like you who were like, well, I don't know what that means. And I was like, you know, I don't know who gave me the moniker. Somebody said, oh, you're like the startup dad. That's awesome. Because like my advice is always something to do with like family and kids. And I don't use family and company interchangeably. I think I keep the two very separated. But, you know, when Max was one years old, I think, is I was head of recruiting at or director of recruiting, whatever you want to call it, at a game company. And I hired like 120 people, 130 wow. people in like two years. So like massive, massive recruiting effort by myself mostly because I only had one person to help me. And then I was let go. And I was let go as I was driving to work, like on my way. To the office, my manager calls. He's like, hey, where are you? And I was like, I'm almost at the office. What do you need? And he goes, oh, you don't have to come in. I was like, oh, really? That's interesting. So I like literally turned off the side of 101, took the call, and then got off the highway and got back on going south. To go what home. the heck? Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't, I don't even tell the story to people. But the reason it's tied in is like at that point, I was like, okay, these companies, like they don't actually care about you. And I'm going to start my own company because I think that's what, is the best thing for my family. Wait, it was just that nonchalant? Like, was it a hyper-growth startup? Next day. No, it was next day. I was like, I'm going to start my first startup, which was Prong Motors, which I built a car back in 2000, 2009, right? Like, this is Max was two or three years old. But at that time, my wife was pregnant. So that's Mia was in the belly when I started that company. And I do not recommend doing that. But she's the reason why I'm a girl, girl dad, right? And she, and like, I love my kids. I love them both, but they, they're very different. And I think as a parent, you can tell that almost right away. I'm probably like butchering this, but I, I got to get the timeline down here because I'm like getting a little bit confused. So you started off in the tech space as a recruiter, did a like a hyper growth kind of project, hired 120 people in two years, the gaming company. They callously fairly callously let you go. I mean, that sounds like you did your job. It sounded like the manager didn't even realize that that was a negative thing. They probably were just like, hey, you did your thing and now we need to move to the next thing. It wasn't even like personal. Yeah. They just like, that's it. No. Wow. I finished my gig. So I was like, oh, okay. I thought I was an employee. But yeah. So then since then I've been kind of a contract recruiter. Yeah. Like, tell me what you need. I'll come in. I'll get you those people. But, you know, I have my own companies. I have my own stuff that I'm working on. And most importantly, I have my family to take care of. And then so you started your first company and you dabbled in entrepreneurship, building a car while you had your first kid. Uh, second, second kid. Because Max was already, yeah, Max was already like two or three years old, but Mia was going to be That's born. That's wild. So I thought like the only way to ensure our own security is to like do our own business. And how old are you? Because that doesn't sound like a secure thing to do to start a car company. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's definitely, I, like I said, it was not, it was not the best idea yeah. I've had, but I was really like, I was really emotional kind of and frustrated. Certain that this yeah. is the future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was just like done with, done with yeah. companies, but I thought I'm going to have my own company because I had my own kind of destiny in my hands. Right. Anyways, that's, that's silliness. But at that time it's 2009. So I was like, 28, 29, no, wait, sorry, 2009. I don't even know. Yeah, it's okay. You don't have to age yourself, but yeah, you were, you were younger. No, no, yeah. I was born in 75, so I was like almost 30, or I was past 30. I was 32, yeah. 32 years old, so not quite young, but also not that old. That's awesome. And so you embarked on starting a car company, 
And did you just like, like, did you like love cars? And like, why would you start a car company? It's like the most random thing in the world. So that's the thing. Everybody thinks of me as like the bike and startup guy, but I was actually a car guy. Like, I love cars. I think cars was like the best thing. And at that time, the companies that were started around the same time that we started, there was four companies in California. There's a bunch of others in the, in, uh, across the US, but like none of them did anything. So the four companies in California were Prong, Tesla, Fisker, and Aptera. Holy cow. And out of the four, only Tesla survived, wow. right? Only Tesla is the one that's left. And they all had you know, various levels of funding. We did not have anything close to that funding. So it was very bootstrapped effort. It was like me and a couple of engineers, and we built a car in nine months. Like from scratch. That's awesome. And what were the specs and stats on it? Oh, God. It was super light. It was a three-wheeler. So it was kind of sort of like a weird hybrid between a a motorcycle and a car. We used a V-twin Rotex motor from a motorcycle. And we used a stability system from an Audi A6. And we used like a wire harness. Like I just met with an engineer who worked on the project with me. And I told him it's been like 10 years. So he's got a kid now. And we were just joking. I was like, that car never would have ran without you. Like, I don't even know. I don't even know what he did. But he's a mechanical engineer, Stanford or MIT, something like that. It was one guy from Stanford, one guy from MIT, and me, like the non-technical idiot. But with like this crazy idea of like, I want to build yeah. a car. Like, why not? Let's, let's build a car. So we did. And we drove it around. And, you know, famously, Jay Leno drove it. We were on the local news. We were on NBC News. We did all the press and media Did you get stuff. to meet him? But we never had... Yeah, yeah. I did you get to go to his garage? He made lunch. Yeah. He made us lunch. Like, <laughs> what did he out. make you? That's amazing. He made he made sausages, Italian sausages. Oh my sausage gosh, that's amazing. For lunch. With like they were like I mean, like you go you go to a barbecue and yeah. you make hot dogs. Like, no, Jay Leno makes you Italian sausages like, in the garage. Legit ones. With yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> so you got to see yeah. his garage with all of his like four hundred like fancy like exotic cars? He gave me a no tour because I came back Sunday. I came back Sunday to pick up my car because I was driving back to the Bay Area. And I was like, hey, I called the producer. Hey, I got to go get my car. It's stuck in the in your garage. And he's like, oh, don't worry. I'll call somebody and have somebody come by and open it for you. So I figured some other mechanic was going to come by yeah. and open it up. Jay Leno rolls up in his brand new Ferrari. Uh, not, not Ferrari, Corvette C7, I think, or C6, whatever the oh, generation what? was. And I was like, wait, they called you to come back to open this up? He's like, no, no, I was just driving, you know, Sunday morning. I was doing my drive. I was just going to come back anyway. So I let you in. And then I helped him park this like 25 foot shell tanker because it has no mirrors. So I stood on it while he backed into oh, this garage. And then since we we're in the back of the garage, as we walked out, he's like pointing out everything. And this guy's like, he knows everything about all the cars he has. And he has like 200 motorcycles. Oh, too. wow. And he's just giving me the tour. He's like, I'm like, wait, is that a Cosmo? He's like, yeah, it's like one of five in the world or something like that right and it's like some old steam cars there's some old bugattis there's a delahaye like all, like just mind blown but the thing is because i started the car company i kind of hate cars now are you serious yeah yeah i'm not i'm not much of a car well that's what i've days. heard though like that's why people say that if you really love a type of food don't start a restaurant in it because you end up hating that type yeah, of yeah. food and like your love for it yeah. dissipates because it becomes work and redundant and you end up like living and breathing it right and so so it's, it's kind of the same thing with Karmic, with the e-bikes. Yeah. Like after six years, I'm like, I'm kind of sick of this because that's what you do every single yeah. day, whether you want to or not, whether you love it or not. Every day you wake up and you do the same thing. 
And so I had, you know, a couple months off. And then Monday, the day after July 4th, I was like, I have a free day. So what do I do? I go in the garage and I start working on bikes. I'm like, but that's what I like to do. Like when I don't have to do it for work, that's what I actually enjoy doing. I like spending time in the garage and like being by myself and wrenching on stuff. So it's like, it's kind of like a delicate balance when you're like an entrepreneur, right? It's like trying to find that balance of like what doing what you're passionate about, but also like not overdoing it necessarily because you may end up like, like uh, needing a break from it, but maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's just like yeah. taking a break from it, right? It it's like gaming, right? You have a main character and sometimes you need an alt character, you know, to like, you know, satiate you your need needs. Side yeah, exactly. Side quest. That's right. Yeah. So you could like stay engaged in the game and your character, right? It also helps me because like we sort of pause the business due to like supply chain issues around the world. But going back and working other startups gives me a bit of a reset. I'm like, oh, here's another problem I can work on and like get really kind of deep into and then like fix that. That's right. And then I can move on to the next thing and do that. And then like over time, my passion, I hate that word, but like over time, my enthusiasm for cars, bikes, whatever does come back, I think. And so then you did the recruiting thing as a consulting consulting business or recruiting business, sorry. And then you yep. launched karmic which is where I, where I know you as in this e-bike and you got a lot of notoriety and really cool design awards and all sorts of fun stuff around that and then the supply chain thing and then back to consulting for recruiting for startups and then as you mm-hmm. get that stuff released from supply chain and covid and kind of the global logistics you'll just keep dabbling back and forth yeah i mean we made an active decision to pause karmic due to the industry issues but I thought it would be a year and I'm still keeping tabs on everything. I'm still tr- keep track of like supply chain factories and the parts suppliers and all the partners that we have over in Asia. And now it's looking like two years. So they're saying we, we can't get anything until 2022. Is it a combination of a lot of things or what is it? It's everything. It's just, it's like a perfect storm. Like COVID only accelerated it. Like this is going to be a reckoning for the bike industry anyway. It's a false hope because like sales went up like crazy last year and then like everything dried up and so are the sales going to come back this year once everything opens up or is it only a one-time thing like literally a once in a lifetime thing because i know people in the industry for 20 30 40 years and they say they've never seen anything like this you mean like selling bikes yeah they were like completely sold out people were back order like you can you know get full price basically because the bike industry has a long history of discounting so now we're selling stuff for full price and i sold out you know, we sold out our stuff within months. Wow. This is insanity because they're talking about the same things in cars. Like people can't like someone, I, I, my dealership here wanted to buy my Prius for more than I paid for it. And I'm like, this yeah, is insane. Yeah. That's crazy. You you want to give me yeah. what for this? Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> I need something right now, but yeah. I, I sh- yeah, that's the problem though. If you sell it, you have to get something that's right. else, right? Well, the so. new car is so expensive and there's nothing available. And like, so if I wanted to buy yeah, a new car or I wanted to buy like an upgrade or get a replacement for it, like it's impossible. So it's like, I can't even sell this because what am I going to sell it for? Yeah. I think the average new car price is over $30,000. Wow. Average, like literally every single car. So it's the same for the bikes. Yeah, but the bike supply chain is not as resilient as the car supply chain. Like a good example is Toyota, right? Like they knew that COVID was going to hit globally and they were able to like adjust within probably a couple of weeks. This is wild, man. And they can like ramp up and down versus like the bike industries, like all family businesses, all 20, 30 years of relationships. They don't know how to like actually manage inventory, which is a very basic thing. And I'm, I'm putting myself in that category, right? Like we didn't know 
how to manage inventory because we didn't know this was going to happen. And then even it did happen, like now the downstream effects of it is like, can we really afford to keep in business? Like there are bike shops going out of business and you're like, wait, I thought bike sales were booming. It's like, yeah, they are. But you have nothing to sell and you still have to make rent. It's a tough nut, man. That's really, really interesting problem to like be an entrepreneur during this time, especially like a bike entrepreneur. During this time, I never even really thought about the supply chain hitting entrepreneurship like that. Because you typically think of like software and tech, you know, like not really being impacted. But that's really, really interesting. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is also a semi-chip, like semiconductor shortage, right? So mm-hmm. like they're tiny chips and everything. So we have chips in our controller, display, motor. And if they can't get those parts to make the motor parts, then we can't build the bikes from those, right? So there's like a long supply chain that's affected. Yeah, and the resiliency is probably also has a lot to do with the fact that like, there's a pecking order to where the supplies go to as mm-hmm. well. And I'm sure totally. e-bikes is totally. not on the top yet. Just it's not as mainstream as a, as a car is, you know? No. And out of all the e-bike companies, we're like way down here versus like the big guys, right? So I think the thing is COVID's, I think COVID's had massive impacts on society. Mm-hmm. And I think the most important thing is actually not companies, not businesses, not founders, not entrepreneurs. The most important thing is families. Mm. So families have been impacted in many ways that they haven't yet understood. Let's go in that. It's a good segue. So I know you mentioned your kids through yeah. this kind of professional journey of yours, but like, tell us more about your kids. How many do you have? Who are they? How old are they now? And let's start there. So I have two kids, Max and Mia. So famously, we call them the M&Ms. Max is, I want to get this right. He's going to watch this. And he's going to be like, how do you not know how old I am? Max is 14. So he's going to high school and Mia's 11. So she's going to middle school. And I think this summer is like a big summer for them because it's a transition year, right? They're going to both go to new schools. And, you know, we're in a good area. So they like it here, obviously. But then, you know, high school gets really challenging. The local high school is like, you know, it's a public school, but it's a very rigorous school. And then kind of the expectations that start to set in for a kid in high school, like what? What are you going to do? What college? What are you going to do for a career? Like all those questions come up naturally. Like we're not trying to push them in any particular direction. And then I think growing up here in the Bay Area is very unique. I grew up in New York City, so I have that experience. My wife grew up here, but not in like this kind of neighborhood. It's like completely different than it used to be 20 years ago. I mean, oh, yeah. it's unbelievable yeah, totally. amount of pressure. It's nice that you said 20. Is <laughs> I'm just saying, I feel like, I feel like the last five years have been astronomical, but I, I definitely think it really started 20 years ago. Like where you saw this like yep. shift in like pay and, and talent yep. pool and like just the economy and like the expectations put on people. And then it's also like, mm-hmm. now you're starting to see this tremendous wealth that formed from that last wave. And then the kids coming into that wealth, right? Like this, mm-hmm. I remember reading, I remember reading something in like the Palo Alto daily, like 10 years ago. The, it was a front cover article. It was like so funny because it was all these millionaires complaining about these billionaires <laughs> gentrifying them out of Palo Alto. And it, I mean, I'm, I shouldn't giggle because it's like, it's not really cool, but it's also really funny, right? Because it's, it's literally like the most ridiculous thing you could read. It's like so like typical Silicon Valley, what you would watch on that show, but it's like in real life. You're just right. like, this is right. actually on their newspaper as the front cover. These, these like poor millionaires. Yeah, yeah these poor that. millionaires. I remember that article. I remember that article. And that, that, I think that's actually the start of what I started using this hashtag called Palo Alto Palo Alto Problems. problems. Like it's like uh, a, you know, a it's rendition like, of first world problems, but Palo got it. Exactly. It's like a, it's like an even higher <laughs> first world problem, which is like, are you really complaining about yeah. this? But yeah, people complain about everything. Yeah. So 
Yeah, poor millionaires. So it's like it's like them kind of growing up in this like new kind of world essentially because it's really kind of a new frontier with Silicon Valley kind of exploding the way it has and then this wealth trans wealth and tra- um, success and notoriety like transferring down to this new generation of kids. It's like really the first generation of kids are kind of growing up in this like shadow of all these like tech titans really in my opinion it's kind of a weird time yeah i wouldn't say it's the first generation but it's definitely early days of it and i think as parents like the biggest question we have is like (laughs) my wife and i both grew up in kind of less fortunate situations but then you wonder like does your success become a burden for the children oh like expectations wise expectations higher for them which they are for sure and or are they like essentially spoiled and they can't actually do the work that you know that we had done to get to where we are can we can we talk about that like i'd love to know about your childhood actually if you don't mind yeah if you don't mind sharing a little bit about your childhood like how did you grow up what was that like i grew up poor and it sucked and it was terrible like i joke with my kids like if you have yep. a choice don't choose that it was a rough life we're refugees from Vietnam, arrived in Brooklyn in the early, well, 79, so before the 80s. But growing up in the 80s in New York was not a very pleasant experience. There was a lot of us because we were Vietnamese. And I think we had a tiny little like two-bedroom, I wouldn't even say apartment. It was kind of like in the, not the projects, of course, but in the tenement housing is how I describe it. And my brother and I actually went back with our kids like a couple years ago. And we're like, oh my God, imagine, like, remember we were all in this tiny little apartment. We didn't go in. We just saw the outside. Yeah, we went back to the Did you go with your kids? Block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a picture of them with, like, my two kids, his two kids, and we were just, like, laughing because, you know, it's good to look back and see how far we've come. But it's also hard for them to understand that situation because there's no way they would experience it. Like, we can tell them stories and we should, but there's no way they live the experience that we had. And I wouldn't want them to. That's the thing. I, I do not want them to have that life at all. It was not easy, but I think out of what, I mean, six kids, seven kids now, because my little sister was born in Brooklyn, or she was born in Queens, seven kids, like five of us, six of us went to Ivy Leagues. Oh, wow. So like, by all measures, like that's the American dream, right? Grew up, you know, on welfare, poor, and we all ended up in like the highest institutions in the land. But then what do you do with that? Like, where do you go from there? And so. That's the bigger question. It's like, I think at the end of the day, what I tell you and what I tell all the other parents is like every single parent, bar none, except for maybe terrible parents, but every parent wants a better life for their kids. That's it. Well, and that's what, I mean, that's what your parents wanted for you, which is I'm sure why they came here, Mm -hmm. right? And you were able to leverage that and do good for yourself. And and now you just got to figure out what that means for your kids in... Well, they have to figure it out. Oh, what do you mean? Explain. They decide what they do. I'm I'm not the one who's going to figure it out for them. So you're not you're not pushing them into anything. No, because like they sort of decided that they're going to do these two things, and I'm like, well, that's a result of growing up here, right? So the joke is that Mia's going to start a company. So she wants to be an engineer. She wants to do something in mechanic, like hardware, hardware mechanical. And then like because of my last client, she's like, oh, can I be an environmental scientist? And I was like, you can do whatever you want, but she wants to do something like impactful, meaningful, right? And again, she's 10 or 11 now. But she had been talking about this for a while. And Max is like, I want to be a VC. Nice. <laughs> That's amazing. 
And I'm like, do you know how VCs get started? And he's like, no, how? I was like, <laughs> they, they, uh, they all come from rich families. That's why. Um, but like, if you think about it, if you understand what VCs do, like that sounds like a great job, right? Yeah. So they're like on the two, two sides of the same coin. Like he wants to be a VC. She wants to be a founder. And I was like, just make sure that you let him invest in that's your right. company. That's right. Because that's the only way he's going to make it. <laughs> that's amazing. I love that that's, a, that that's what they want to do. I mean, that's... No, I mean, it's just a, it's a, a very palatable thing, right? Like, I don't think most kids even think about this stuff. And I'm not saying this is what they're going to do. I'm saying this is what they're saying that they're of doing Of course. Today. I mean, I uh, feel like I changed what I wanted yeah. to do like 40 times before, like, you know, I turned even like 40 <laughs> really last year. Yeah. I was still trying to figure out what I wanted you to might, do. You might change it end of this <laughs> week, right. too. I, I keep changing it all the time, actually, even now. So, I mean, yeah, we can't hold yeah. them to that. But I think it's really cool that they can even articulate that. That's amazing. Yeah. That's fantastic, man. And so. I, I also think that it's really cool that you're not like pushing them to anything. So you're allowing some of the environment to come to that, but you're just kind of having a conversation. Were you always like that or did you make like a tactical switch as they got older? No, I, I definitely switched because I had a bit of realization myself like three or four years ago. And it was sort of a traumatic thing. Like my sister passed from cancer. And I don't talk about it because it's a very personal and I'm not sure that I'm quite over it. I don't think you ever get over it, quite honestly. But at that point in my life, that's when I was like, yeah, we really need to be like more clear. I'm, I was always a strict parent, but I said we have to be more clear on like what we're doing, why we're doing it, explain stuff to the kids. And they were very young. Well, it was three, three years ago, so they were a little bit younger. But I had to be more intentional about how I parent. Because a lot of parents, we kind of just let stuff happen. And the kids learn whether we want them to, to or not. Like they're learning all the time. They're seeing everything we do. They're seeing everything we say. They're seeing how we live and how we act and how we carry ourselves. And so I just decided like on a flight back from New York that I'm just going to be more intentional about how I do what I do. And that's when I made the switch to say my number one job is to be a dad. Everything else is in support of that. I'm really sorry to hear about your loss. And thank you for sharing that. I, we, you know, take so much of this stuff for granted. Right. And like, and sometimes it does like, you need that, that like nudge to like take things more mm -hmm. seriously, but I'm glad that in, in some small way that your sister's passing was able to uh, change that in you and give you that hyper-focus and how you wanted to like prioritize your life. Cause, cause then now it makes a lot more sense how you started this interview, right? Where you're saying like you're a dad first. Cause I actually, I think that's really interesting because when people ask me like, oh, what do you do? You know, it's like a casual conversation. I think the first thing that comes to mind is like, I'm a consultant. I'm an entrepreneur. You know, like I'm, uh, you know, like I'm an ops guy. Like and it's usually not dad right. first. Right. And so that's really. No, I mean, that's in like the context of like a, like a social meeting, like a work meeting. You usually do lead with what we do. Like that's a very American thing to say, like, I'm a, I'm a recruiter. That's what I do. But that's not who I am. Right. That's just my job. That's what I'm good at. Oh, I see what you're saying. So it's not like you answer like that, even in the job format. You're saying that when you think about yourself, you qualified as a dad first. That's your number yep. one priority. Yep. That's amazing, man. Yep. I love that. And so how do you like think about being a good dad? Like, what does that mean to you? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I actually ask my kids all the time. I'm like, am I, am I a good dad? I ask them. Because you get of... feedback from your kids? Yeah. Dude, that's dope. I love that you do that. That's awesome. Why why wouldn't you? I mean, you should too. What I mean, your daughters are younger, but like you should too. Why that's a wouldn't great you? Great point. Right? Think about it. If it's a job, 
Do you want to know how well you're doing? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So like ask your kids, ask your wife. My wife would probably say I'm terrible. But like I ask because I need to know. It's not how I think I'm doing. It's how they think I'm doing. Yeah. It's like the whole mantra of like, even if it's not important to me, if it's important to you and I care about you, now it's important to me. Right. It's like that kind of, I'm saying it wrong, but there's like this adage that goes along that theme. And I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. That's amazing. So what does that look like? Is it, is it fairly organic or is it like, do you actually structure it like some sort of like templated thing? No, it's just, it's organic. It, to be quite honest, it's when I'm feeling down. I'll ask them. Yeah. What do they say? And it's it always, they say, yeah. I mean, like my daughter's like, you're a great dad. And my son's like, yeah, you're pretty good. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, that's high praise from him. So I'll take it. Yeah. I'll take it. Right. Cause he's a teenager and you know, like. At that age, when I was his age, oh man, I hated my dad. I'll be honest, I, I did not like him at all. I'm assuming they were so much stricter. If they're typical immigrant Asian Asian parents, I mean, they you know they're super super strict and rigid, right? I'm that was the environment, that was the culture. Yeah. If they weren't, we never would have done what we did, right? Like, there's lots of this. You can't you can't look at any one thing and say right or wrong because it's all interrelated. So. I'm intentional about what I do. I try to be as intentional as what I do. I, I have my moments. I yell at my kids too, right? Like I'm not perfect, obviously. But, you know, afterwards, I'll, I'll go back and be like, hey, do you know why I yelled at you? And do you think it was fair? And we can talk about it. Hmm. Because in his mind, he's like, that's stupid. Like, you're just an angry dude, right? Like well, how I think of my dad. And in my mind, I'm like, look, I'm trying to do something and teach you kind of right and wrong and what's good and what's not. And like, you know, you ultimately have to decide that for yourself as an adult. But for now, until then, I'm trying to guide you. I'm trying to just basically give you advice. And I'm very upfront and open with my kids about how things are going. And like, I talk about work and all this stuff at dinner. And my wife's like, why do you tell them all this stuff? And I was like, because they're smart enough to understand. And there's no benefit in kind of withholding information when you're dealing with intelligent people. Right? Intelligent people will always make up their own decisions and, and come up with their own understanding. But the best thing you can do is provide as much information as possible versus typical parenting. is like, we're, we know what's good for you. We're going to tell you what's right and what's wrong. It's also like you're not putting any kind of constraints on their intelligence or their comprehension either. You're literally saying, I'm expecting you to be smart enough to understand what I'm saying. And I, I think they're smarter than me. Well, even if they're not, you're expecting it. And so by by just form of nature, they will like start either filling into those roles or they'll start like thinking about things in a much broader, bigger scope, right? That's a very yep. unique, uh, unique tactic. I should definitely employ that. Is yeah, it? it is because psychologically, like if you keep telling someone that, you know, that there's like, you know, there's like this thing that they can or can't do and here's how to do it, then they're going to automatically over time follow into a rut, right? They're going to fall into this kind of container yep. where you constantly tell someone yep. like, hey, like, like you talk about it, like everything is possible or like anything is doable, then they, they think that it's possible. Like it's just our human brains are wired to a certain degree to be malleable and, and, and kind of constrained to whatever boundaries you put on it. I'm not saying it's perfect science, but there is some, some level of malleability that we have as human beings. And I think that the fact that you just expect them to comprehend above, you know, what normal people would expect is great. It's a great tactic. And we're talking about something like super complicated. Like I'm trying to explain like AI or something. Like I tried to explain it where they do understand it. I'm not going to use like the most technical terminology. I'm not going to like have them read a white paper or anything. But like I think most people can understand how things work. Yeah. So if you qualify your life as a dad first and then in business as kind of like this 
permuta- uh, permu- permutation of you needing to be a good dad, like how do you qualify success in business and, and in your working life? So most people would say success is like if you have a good job, you have a good salary and you whatever, whatever, right? Those are kind of like the out signs of success. And I think it's very un- well understood in the U.S. system. Yeah. It's like you work hard and you get these, you know, promotions and you end up as VP right. one day or whatever. I'm a recruiter. I don't really care about titles. I care about helping people find the right job for them. And in turn, I get paid by the companies that I help build. How I think about success, I think we've talked about this in the past, which is for me, success is really simple. Success, I don't think I'll ever stop working because it's just the way I'm wired. But success is being able to choose who I work with. That's actually pretty deep because you're you're talking about a lot of things. You're talking about mm-hmm. the ability to choose who you work with. So that also means that you have some level of like security in finding money and procuring the basics. You have some security in the ability to get some of the more intangible things that you would want to the point where you can actually choose who you work with. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. I have enough bikes. I don't need any more bikes. So I have everything I need. But I do want to provide, you know, a, a certain standard for my kids and to stay in this area. And, like, you know, it's obviously very expensive. But it, I think it's important for them to be here because this is where they were born, quite literally, and where they, most, they feel most comfortable. So it's an investment in their future for us to do what we do today. Just like my parents made an investment in our futures by leaving the country and like coming to the U.S. with nothing in their pockets. That was an investment. That was an investment of their life and their time. So I'm doing the same for my children and I hope they do the same for their children. But back to the point about the business. Yeah, of course, that's a very privileged statement to say that I can choose who I work with. But I can because I'm really good at what I do. So if I'm good at what I do, then there's going to be more than enough opportunity for me. And then by default, I get to choose who I work with, right? I'm not saying I don't work, like I don't have to work, like I'm not that rich. But I enjoy the work that I do and I enjoy working with the people that I work with. So that is much more rewarding than like the actual paycheck, right? And yeah, I think that's how I think about it. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I I, I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about success and, and qualifying it. And you're right, like typically, you know, especially in American society and definitely in Silicon Valley, it's like the, the trifecta, right? It's usually just like title, pay, and company, like logo, right? That's really the, the three things, right? And it's like so funny because like as I, as I get older and older, I realize that I care about those three things less and less and less. And, and then maybe it's because I'm getting older. Maybe it's because I have kids. I'm not entirely sure. But those things like every year, like I just care about them less and less. And they just keep moving down my list of values, you know, things that are important to me. Yeah. And yeah. And I'm a lot older than you. So. Are you? That's awesome. Uh, good to know. Yeah, it's just a really interesting, interesting way to like point that out because maybe that's actually actually where I'm headed as well too. And maybe I could just like skip a couple chapters and just skip to it. <laughs> that's awesome, man. So I do want to just pick on that one thing that you just said about staying in Palo Alto because you know I moved to I, I don't know if you know this, but you do, you do know I, I moved to Austin. So now I'm in Texas, and I, I literally was born and raised in the Bay Area, born in Oakland, lived there my entire life. Out of nowhere, I have no family, no friends. Oh, I have friends, some friends that are already here. That, that was a, actually very surprising how many people were already here. But a lot. <laughs> a lot. I thought I was being special. I'm like, hey, I'm moving to Austin. And everyone's like, welcome. And I'm like, oh, crap. There's a lot of us here already. Yeah. But yeah, so I moved here eight months ago and just like, like kind of like intentionally moved away from the Bay Area because of like mm-hmm. 
really my kids. So it's kind of funny that we did the we're doing the opposite route for our kids because it sounds like you're staying intentionally for your kids, and I'm staying. Inten- I moved away intentionally for my kids. That's really interesting. Can you talk to me about that? Like, what what about Palo Alto are you staying for? What do you what do you mean by saying like you you need to invest in them to do this? I mean, I, I have a very unique view of this, and I'm not even saying my wife agrees with me on this. But at the end of the day, what I will say is like what you and I do is the same thing. We've both made a decision that we believe is the best decision for our children, right? So there's no difference between you and I. We just end up in different places. So there's a couple of things. My wife is Bay Area, born and raised, and she this is home for her. It's, it's not going to change. So we had looked at Austin, Seattle, Boulder. So I went to visit Boulder just to make sure like it was okay. And it was like, no way. It's freaking cold up there. We looked at SoCal. My little sister lives in Irvine, right? Like we looked at a lot of places, even Vancouver, quite honestly, in, in the in the beginning of the pandemic, right? Because at that time, like her job shifted to full-time remote. I always work remote. I mean, now I can work remote, mm-hmm. but I wasn't going to SF anymore. And I was like, we can actually live anywhere. So funny enough, we moved out of the old house in June of last year. So right in the, at the beginning of the pandemic, landlord's like, oh, well, we're going to sell this place. And I was like, okay, great. Gave us 30 days notice and we had to vacate. So we scrambled and we found another place uh, in Palo Alto. But the reason is like, I didn't want to change the schools for the kids. They were very comfortable where they are. They had a good like group of friends. And these are folks that they're going to, they're going to be friends with for the rest of their life. So I just remember as a kid moving schools quite a bit and it was very disruptive. And I don't have a lot of like lifelong friendships from people at that time. And part of it is I moved, you know, clear across the country. So I still have a couple high school friends and middle school friends on Facebook, but like we don't really talk anymore. And I think what you'll find is if you do the research and you do the reading on this stuff, like the most important thing in your life is actually these long-term relationships. So even you and I are in the business of like meeting Mm -hmm. a lot of people. It's not all the thousands of people that we know. It's the handful of people that we keep close to us for our lifetimes. So that includes your wife, right? That includes uh, the close friends, probably like the guys from, Govo, right? Like those are the people that are going to sustain yeah. you. They're going to keep you happy long-term. So it doesn't matter where you are. Uh, if they happen to be in the area, great. But I think COVID's really shifted society. Again, I'll go back to this, this concept of like, everything's changed. Families change, work has changed, and our relationships to each other have changed. Our relationships to our children have changed. The kids are going through a tremendous shift because of the pandemic. Moms in particular are under tremendous stress because of this. I just don't think people have really spent a lot of time thinking about what happens next because we're all still in it, right? Like we're all trying to get out of the pandemic. But once we're out of it, if we ever are out of it, then we have another issue. Like we have other big issues to to deal with. Um, so for me, I think Palato is where they are most comfortable. It's where they'll do the best. It's where they don't lose that sense of possibility. I think that's the what I talk about the investment. The investment is that their mindset is going to be very different than most people. And they'll be able to do whatever they want. I love that, man. That's really great. Yeah. It's really, really great. But there's a cost, right? There's a price. There's a price that we pay. Oh, yeah. So, as long as you understand. I mean, everyone from California understands the investment you're making. But I mean, you know, like now that I moved to Austin, I actually have pretty significant percentage of the listeners from Austin. 
And it's just like so hard for me to explain like how expensive things are there. Like it's so Oh, you don't bad. have to explain it. Yeah, we have friends in Austin who were there. They moved there like, I want to say 15 years yeah. ago. So yeah, I've been to Austin a couple of times. Um, it's great. Yeah, I think it's, it's super like, fun. It's one of the areas, right? Austin, Miami, like there's these second cities that people will migrate to. Yeah. And I think that's actually the thing about remote work is like, we can do this without having to sit here at a coffee shop in Miami, that's right. right? We can do this anywhere. So if that opens up all of these other areas that people can find the ideal balance between cost and, you know, cost of living and available amenities, schools, neighborhoods, yeah. excuse me, networks, whatever. But every person needs to make that decision themselves. This was really, really great. But I do want to make sure that I'm, I'm mindful of your time. I know you're very, very busy spinning yep. up businesses and recruiting for the next cool startup in Silicon Valley. So I do want to ask you a couple of questions that I'm asking every guest. So that way we can have some symmetry mm-hmm. through, the, through the interview. So I want to fire those off if you're okay yep. with that. All right, sure. here we go. So what advice do you have for other parents and soon-to-be parents? What advice do I have for parents? Just a general mm-hmm. advice? Just enjoy the time. Like the advice I have for everybody, and this is very, you know, maybe fatalistic because of what happened a few years ago, but just enjoy the time that you have with your kids. It goes, it goes so quick. Like I'm going to start crying if I think about it. So there's a phrase that I use, and I think I might have told you, I, I tell a lot of parents this, long nights, short years. Mm. That's good, man. You're Enjoy like, it. Yeah, it's very deep. I like it. Very, very deep. You're like a poet. Thank you. It's not my phrase. I, I heard it from another. But, oh, uh, really? It's very good. Yeah, I got it from uh, like an old dad. Actually. Yeah. Uh, well, he's old now. But Is it okay if I used to put on a shirt? That's awesome. I mean, that's a really great parenting. No, quote, it's great. You know? I mean, I don't know where he got it. I don't want to give him credit either because he probably got it from somebody else. Yeah, I'll try to figure out where it came but he's, from. Yeah. He's, a, he's like a legendary VC. Oh, really? And... Yeah, both his kids are now VCs. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Of course they are. All right. If you can go back and tell yourself one thing before having kids, what would it be? Yeah, this is the, the one thing I would say. is, and, and it's the same advice I give to founders, right? This is, this is my startup dadism. Start earlier. Huh. Interesting. Start having kids younger? Having a family or starting a company? Yeah, start earlier. Both or kids? Particularly in the Bay Area. For, for having a kid or starting a company. Really? Yeah. Wow. That is really interesting advice. That's awesome. So you would tell yourself, your younger self to go start earlier, both company and kids. Oh, that's wild. I love that. Is it, is it because like in hindsight, you're like, it's the experience or why, why would you recommend that, that level of chaos? (laughs) No, it does sound, it does sound chaotic. I'm not saying do both at the same time. I actually advise against doing both at the same time. Because you can't do a good job with either and you end up doing a poor job with both. And that's what happened to me. And that's just like, learn from me. Don't do that. Don't start a family and start a company at the same time. But, you know, obviously founders don't listen to advice, so they're going to do it anyway. The, the reason I say start earlier is like a lot of people, particularly in the Bay, sort of wait until they're ready, right? It's this idea of like, wait, I'm not ready. We don't have enough. We don't have a house. We don't have savings. We don't have anything. So it's always wait, wait, wait. And like, you know, whether starting a company or starting a family, you wait until you're ready. But the problem is no one's ever Mm. ready. So you don't like train to become a dad or mom or become a parent. Like you become a parent by being a parent. You become a founder by being a founder, right? Like there's no way to do it without doing it. So the earlier you start, the better off you are. And quite honestly, the more time you have to kind of 
make mistakes, which we all make. You just create the parallel between starting a company and having kids. That's amazingly true because like, oh my gosh, that's, that's, that's that startup dad. Yeah. It's brilliant because even like being a founder, it's like, you know, the vast, I don't know what percentage, but the vast majority of people have ideas. And like the reason why, you know, like people, there's so little like people starting companies because there's so few people that will actually take that jump. They're not ready. They have yep. something that they, they have to perfect yep. or like they have to get that business plan. They have to get a loan. They have to like, there's always a reason why the vast majority of people don't take that jump. And it's literally the same parallels. Just no one ever equates the same things. Like you're never going to have a business like that's fully ready to go for you to not fail and mess up. It's the same thing with parenting. There's, there's going to be stuff you cannot plan for. And as a parent of two, you're going to mess up. Oh on the first yeah. One. Oh, that's amazing. Hong. I love that feedback. That's awesome. That's really great advice. That's great. All right. So what is the most surprising thing that you learned about yourself becoming a parent? If you asked me this a month ago, I would have had a different answer, I think. <laughs> tell me that one and tell me this one today. Yeah. I mean, so the surprising thing back then was I really enjoyed being a dad. Like, I really love it. Like, it's become like my identity. Yeah. But I'm okay yeah. with that. Like, I used to be like, oh, I'm a founder. I started a car company. I built a bike and I designed all this stuff. And like people ask me that. And like, to me, it's so boring now to talk about that yeah, shit. I don't I'm sorry. Care, yeah. It's so boring to like, especially in the Valley, like everybody only talks about what companies and what businesses and what, like, whatever. I'm a dad. Like, I love this job, man. Like, I really enjoy it. But I think the surprising thing lately is because after Father's Day, I, you might have seen my Facebook post. I am a lot more like my dad than I admit. You mean the strictness, the, the, the drive, the push to like have your kids excel? Like, yeah. Oh, cool. That aspect of it. The Asian dad. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm very Asian dad. But I try not to be overbearing about it, I think. You're obviously already different because you're asking for feedback. I can't imagine my dad asking for yeah. feedback. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> So just by the sheer fact that you're asking feedback yeah. on how you're performing as a dad already makes you a different variation of, uh, of your dad. Well, it's what you do with the feedback, right? Somebody could tell you you're terrible and you're like, well, whatever, I'm not going to change. Very right? good point. Very good point. All right. You actually have to want the feedback. It's a good point. Yeah. All right. So what is your all-time favorite business book? All-time favorite? Like I haven't, I'm not a big business book guy. I buy them and they sit in the shelf and I'll read a lot of them. <laughs> I think all-time favorite from a business perspective is like the no asshole rule because I go by that rule. Like that's my metric of success is I get to choose who I work with. Mainly, I don't work with assholes. I never work with assholes. I don't care how much money you have. But like as far as a fun to read business book, I actually like Mark Randolph's new book. And the reason is he was, he was on my podcast, right? So I'm going to plug it. Nice. But he is the founder of Netflix, the CEO, original CEO of Netflix. And it was his idea that... Um, like Reed and him, we used to sit at a coffee shop in Santa Cruz because they were commuting together across 17 from Santa Cruz down to the valley. And they would go through all these business ideas. No so way. Mark, Yeah, Mark Randolph was the original founder of Netflix. And his book was called That'll Never Work. Oh, my It's a great book because it tells you the whole story. And it, it does talk about the Netflix culture, which is famous here in the valley for building a very like high-performance company. And like the woman, I forget her name. I feel terrible. I want to say Susan, but I might be wrong. But the woman who built the, the HR function there, legendary in the Valley of like building these big companies that do extremely well, right? Like 
hugely right. valuable companies. Because at the end of the day, and Mark will say this, and I tell you this, and you understand this, everything's about people. At the end of the day, it's all about people, right? No matter what your idea is, no matter how good you are at execution, no matter how good of an operator you are, it's about people. So I choose no assholes. And I like Mark's story because it's a kind of a very gritty story. Like there's lots of failure points, obviously. Most companies go through multiple points where like you're either dead or you're alive. And Netflix had a bunch of those. And, you know, everybody loves Netflix today, right? But it's a very different company than when we started. I'm so surprised that there was a backstory like that. That's really, really interesting. I'm going to watch your podcast as well with this interview. And we'll link it. We'll link it underneath uh, here too. So, yeah. Awesome. Um, we'll ch- Van will appreciate that. So we can check that out. That's right. Hong, thank you yeah. so much for taking the time to join me today and talk to me about your life, your family, your job, yeah, and just like we covered so much ground today, man. I, I like love it. I like love it. I'm sorry, I no, talk a lot. It was incredible, man. I felt like it was uh, such a really, really enlightening interview, and I just wa- I just want to say thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. All right, Hong, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, brother. All right. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Girl Dad Show. We hope you enjoyed that interview. If you want to subscribe to our email list and learn more, you can head over to thegirldadshow.com. Thank you and see you next time.